Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Thursday edition of the Georgine Rice Show, five days from Election Day. Although the phrase Election Day has come to mean something quite different this time around, we'll explain why throughout the uh, the conversation about the election coming up on today's program. We're also going to talk with Jeremy Dice. He's special counsel for litigation and communications with First Liberty Institute. You might recall we had a conversation about a blind woman who shared her faith in a local park who was simply um, told that she was trespassing and could no longer share her faith or come to the park. That has since been resolved. We'll talk with Jeremy Dice about that. And we'll speak with Jim Carafano, a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. We're going to talk about Philadelphia riots as another case of street violence that's used to advance radical political agendas. And uh, what we're likely to see in the days ahead leading up to and following the election. We're also going to share a classic interview this first hour with Gary Thomas, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. James Blend is producing this afternoon, Clark Hilton Engineering. Dan Rice has given up the use of his office for the sake of the cause. Well, the economy grew at a record pace during the third quarter as it rebounds from the coronavirus pandemic, although it hasn't fully recovered to its pre-pandemic heights. Uh, GDP increased by an annualized rate of 33.1% during the third quarter. It was a stark contrast to the second quarter's annualized rate of 31.4% contraction. The Commerce Department reported on Thursday the figure is a measure of how much the economy would have grown if the third quarter rate had endured for the whole year. Meanwhile, the U.S. Supreme Court declined yesterday to take up a challenge to North Carolina's decision to allow absentee ballots to be received and counted as late as nine days after voters head to the polls on November 3rd. Justice Clarence Thomas, Samuel Alito, and Neil Gorsuch said that they would have granted the application for injunctive relief against the decision, which was made by the State Board of Elections. Newly confirmed Justice Amy Coney Barrett didn't take part in that decision. Well, the state's extension moved the deadline for absentee ballots from three days after the election to 9 or 5 p.m. on November 12th. Well, the state's attorney general, Josh Stein, he hailed the court's decision in a tweet Wednesday evening, saying a huge win tonight for North Carolina voters at SCOTUS, which held the state board of elections effort to ensure that every eligible vote counts, even in a pandemic. November 12th. Well, with the election just days away and early voting already underway in many states, the election related lawsuits have been piling up and court decisions and appeals have been coming out at a dizzying rate. Now, some are still trying to change the rules in the middle of the election that would make it easier for uh, uh, those who want to commit fraud and manipulate election results, not unlike a college football coach persuading the referees to change the rules in the middle of the bowl game to make sure his team can win. Well, challenges to election procedures in South Carolina, witness requirements for absentee ballots, Ohio and Texas, ballot drop box locations, and Florida registration deadline, to name just a few, have all made the news as they make their way through the federal courts. But there are more. Absentee ballot deadlines have been a major contention, especially when federal judges extend them well beyond Election Day. And that raises many serious issues about the integrity of the election process and the possibility of ballots being voted and collected or altered by so-called vote harvesters after Election Day to shift the reported preliminary results. Now, some of the cases in Wisconsin, um, U.S. Seventh Circuit Court of Appeals, they had a decision to uh, 
stay or stop from going into effect the order of a federal district court judge appointed by President Barack Obama that extended the deadline for the receipt of um, the ballots from November the 3rd to November the 9th, provided that the ballots had been postmarked on or before November the 3rd. In Indiana, unfortunately, the Seventh Circuit's election-related work didn't end with Wisconsin's case. The same court had to repeat itself only five days later when it stayed and summarily reversed an Indiana-based federal judge's order, required the state of Indiana to count all absentee ballots received by November 13th, 10 days after the election. In North Carolina, shifting gears, some plaintiffs have pursued their election-related claims in state courts and then entered into the settlement agreements or consent decrees with state officials who refuse to defend their state laws as they are obliged to do. Well, that's known as collusive litigation in which state elected officials use lawsuits filed by their friends and political allies to subvert laws implemented by state legislatures that they don't like or that were passed by a political opposition. Even more problematic, these consent decrees, in turn, they often spawn their own rounds of federal litigation by state legislators and others who object to state laws being undefended and summarily changed through settlement agreements. Talking about some of the examples of what's going on right now. Minnesota, a federal district court in Minnesota, recently confronted a similar issue with another collusive lawsuit. There, as in North Carolina, Steve Simmons, who's the Minnesota Secretary of State, a former Democrat state lawmaker, entered into a consent decree with certain groups as a result of a state court uh, court lawsuit, uh, agreeing not to enforce Minnesota's statutory mandate absentee ballot recipient deadlines of 8 o'clock p.m. on Election Day, November 3rd. Instead, the state court ordered Minnesota officials, consistent with the consent decree, to count ballots that are postmarked by November 3rd, so long as election officials receive them within a week of election day, again, extending when results will be known. Then in Michigan, the Michigan Court of Appeals there said that the state's intermediate appellate court ruled on the 16th of this month that a lower Michigan court had incorrectly required the state to accept mail-in ballots up to 14 days after Election Day and that it had improperly prohibited the state from enforcing its laws relating to who, other than the voter, can handle and deliver his or her ballot. It made clear that designating um, or rather designing adjustments uh, to our election integrity laws is the responsibility of our elected policymakers, not the judiciary. In fact, the court said our legislature has addressed and the expected increase in absentee voter ballots by empowering clerks to begin processing absentee voter ballots earlier in an effort to provide a final vote tally after polls close for the 2020 election. While plaintiffs may view these efforts as inadequate first steps, there is no reason to believe that these specific efforts um, uh, are constitutionally required even in the midst of a pandemic. Instead, they reflect the proper exercise of discretion, the marshalling and allocation of resources, and the confrontation of thorny policy issues that the people have reserved exclusively for our legislature and executive branches to exercise. Well, I could go on. Pennsylvania, on the 19th of this month, an evenly divided Supreme Court deadlocked four to four, and thus left in place a ruling by Pennsylvania Supreme Court in a lawsuit uh, brought by the Pennsylvania Democratic Party that would require, according to that court's interpretation of state law, state officials to count absentee ballots received up to three days after the election, even if they don't have a postmark showing they had been mailed by Election Day. 
Now, in a surprising move, it was Roberts who joined with the court's liberals to refuse Supreme Court review of the state court's decision. I suppose it's less and less surprising as Roberts reveals himself to be something other than what uh, most believed he would have been as a strict constructionist. In Iowa, on the 14th of this month, the Iowa Supreme Court held that a lower state court abused its discretion when it issued on the 5th of October a stay preventing the Iowa Secretary of State from requiring that county officials distribute only the blank official state of Iowa absentee ballot request form. While the decision turns largely on state law, the court said clearly reasonable people can disagree on whether sending out blank or pre-populated absentee ballot request forms is better policy. But more importantly, it's not the role of the court system to evaluate the wisdom or fairness of policy choices made by other branches of government. Well, contrary to the court's comment about reasonable people, knowledgeable election officials understand that sending out absentee ballot request forms that are already populated with the voter's registration information rather than requiring the voter to provide that information cuts out one of the safety protocols for authenticating absentee ballot requests. Then there's Alabama. We turn there. They previously discussed the 11th Circuit's ruling that have repeatedly stayed a a recalcitrant federal district judge order prohibiting Alabama from enforcing its witness and photo ID requirements for absentee ballots. And the fact that this same decision didn't stay the district court's order telling Alabama state officials they could not stop local officials from providing curbside voting, something not authorized under state law. Well, as noted, federal appeals court judge Barbara Lagoa, who was uh, rumored to have been one of two finalists for the Supreme Court vacancy that ultimately went to appeals court judge Jamie, uh, rather Amy Coney Barrett, would also have stayed the district's court's uh, order with regard to curbside voting. So these are some of the challenges that are already uh, in place before the election. These are states uh, voting lawsuits with election day less than a week away. So if we think the election is going to be over on November the 3rd. We're going to have an announcement. This is the next president of the United States. Think again. We've got a long way to go before issues that have already been raised, not to mention those that are likely to be raised in the coming days, will be resolved. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break, and we'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Reminder, we'll share a classic interview with Gary Thomas, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. That's coming up later this hour. Well, the chairman of the Wisconsin Republican Party said yesterday that hackers have stolen $2.3 million from the party's account. The chairman, who's Andrew Hitt, said the Wisconsin Republicans noticed suspicious activity on Thursday of last week and the next day alerted the FBI, which uh, he says is investigating the matter. Less than a week before the presidential election, Democratic nominee Joe Biden and President Trump are still in a tight race to win Wisconsin's 10 electoral votes. In 2016, Trump won the state by fewer than 23,000 votes. And while that sounds like a big number in a national election, not so much. Well, the anonymous Trump administration official who penned the tell-all memoir titled A Warning, Anonymous, and an anti-Trump op-ed in the New York Times was revealed on Wednesday to be Miles Taylor, former chief of staff at the Department of Homeland Security. Taylor is currently a contributor to CNN and an advisor at Repair. It's a group that describes itself as committing to refocusing the Republican Party's priorities and repairing the American Republic. Well, Taylor also appeared to have worked with Republican voters against Trump, a political organizing group 
The former official endorsed Joe Biden for president in August. Make no mistake, I am a Republican and I want this president to succeed, Taylor wrote in a statement posted on the blog site Medium. But too often in times of crisis, I saw Donald Trump prove he is a man without character and his personal defects have resulted in leadership failures so significant that they can be measured in lost American lives, end quote. The White House immediately hit back at Taylor. This low-level disgruntled former staffer is a liar and a coward who chose anonymity over action and leaking over leading. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany commented in a statement, he was ineffective and incompetent during his time at DHS Chiefs of Staff, which is why he was promptly fired. Both CNN and Vice asked Taylor in August whether he was anonymous, and in both instances, he issued a denial. Some of those media outlets are rather mad at him, excuse me, for just that. But Philadelphia's district attorney on Wednesday warned President Trump against sending uncertified poll watchers to the city, telling the president in a statement, I've got something for you if any attempts are made to interfere with Election Day activities. Well, in a fiery statement that was posted on his website, District Attorney Larry Krasner likened Trump to a lawless, power-hungry despot and vowed that Philadelphians will not be cowed. Well, the statement followed Trump's response to a night of looting in Philadelphia over the police shooting of a black man who police claimed was charging them with a knife. Trump called the shooting a terrible event, then directed attention toward his Democratic rival, Joe Biden, whom Trump accused of supporting the looters and rioters. Krasner said that Trump's Trump's administration supposedly opposes Uh, The greatest danger to public health and safety in modern history, as proof, he pointed to the more than 227,000 Americans who have died of COVID-19. Well, this statement comes less than a week before the election, for which Pennsylvania has become a hotly contested presidential battleground state. The president says uh, Philadelphia police, the shooting was a terrible event, but rioting comes from groups supported by Joe Biden. Joe Biden, on his part, says there's no excuse for looting in Philadelphia. Meanwhile, Philadelphia imposed rather a curfew in anticipation of the third night of violence after the police killing. And looters there ransacked stores and attacked a reporter during the second night of chaos. Bill Maher says Ruth Bader Ginsburg should have quit under Obama. She didn't get the hint. Real-time host Bill Maher has some harsh words for the late Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg, whose death in September paved the way for the confirmation of Justice Amy Coney Barrett. During a Monday night appearance on Jimmy uh, Kimmel Live, uh, Maher said, uh, was asked rather about the moment when uh, news of Ginsburg's death broke while he was taping his show, and Jimmy Kimmel expressed his amazement at how his panel was exactly right at predicting how events um, that were going to play out. Well, it's not like her death was a shock, Maher said. Well, it was. It was, though, Kimmel responded. Really? She was 100 and had cancer like a million times, Mars said, of course, exaggerating. I mean, she was a great justice, but she should have quit. You think so, Kimmel said? Of course, Mars said, because then we would have uh, wouldn't have not so referring to Barrett. Really, to refer to this brilliant jurist as not so because you disagree Uh, with her personal convictions is just breathtaking, but not surprising. Anyway, he also went on to warn that confirming uh, Amy Comey Barrett is like having a the Terminator sent to overturn Roe versus Wade. I'm not convinced he knows how the Supreme Court works. Uh, She doesn't pick an issue and then uh, decide what's going to happen. Anyway, the Girl Scouts deleted a social media post congratulating her on her Supreme Court appointment. It was immediately taken down as it was being interpreted as political. Of course, that wasn't the case with the four previous Uh, more liberal-leaning jurists, so I guess that says something about the organization. Well, a newspaper says Trump deserves a second term, even though he's a wretched human being 
and F-16s intercept a plane flying too close to a Trump rally in Arizona. The Supreme Court has allowed North Carolina to extend its deadline for receiving absentee ballots to nine days after the election. And golf legend Jack Nicholas has endorsed Donald Trump. An Oregon health official dressed as a clown announced the COVID-19 death toll in the state. I haven't quite figured out what the thinking behind that was, although they did go on to talk about how to celebrate Halloween safely. That was a bad call. Samsung reports record sales with questions lingering about their future. And Ford sees a full-year pre-tax profit and posts stronger-than-expected quarterly earnings. Well, health insurance for millennials and Gen Z will most likely be affected by the pandemic. While Twitter CEOs were uh, and others were grilled by Republicans, uh, they were cheered by Democrats for their censorship. The committee subpoenaed Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey and Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg after both platforms attempted to reduce circulation of a New York Post story on Hunter Biden's influence peddling. Conservatives have criticized the social media platforms for alleged censorship of the Post article. The New York Post says Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey on Wednesday falsely told senators that his company lifted a ban on users tweeting articles from the Post's Hunter Biden Biden expose, despite the fact that the ban remained on one of the uh, Post's bombshell stories and was only lifted after he made the claim. Ted Cruz grilled Dorsey for blocking only stories that hurt Biden. And from the Wall Street Journal, the dazed looking Dr. Dorsey, uh, or rather Mr. Dorsey, gave the impression he could not care less about his company's abuse. Democratic senators cheered on uh, politicized social media censorship and demanded the companies do more of it, giving a preview of the type of uh, Internet controls that might be coming if they control the Senate. There's um, no both sides when one side has chosen to reject truth, said Illinois Senator Tammy Duckworth. And CNN is joining in the censorship, refusing to run pro-Trump ads that point out Biden will raise taxes on the middle class, which he will. Uh, From Dan Crenshaw, the biggest takeaway from the big tech hearings, number one, Jack Dorsey is a partisan and a hypocrite. There's no liberal left in um, the Democrat Party. Not a single Democrat senator defended free speech or freedom of the press today. This should terrify Americans. Well, a Philadelphia reporter says that uh, police were told not to arrest looters there. The directive from at Philadelphia police executive team, extremely frustrated officers, both patrol and commanders, told me overnight they were ordered not to arrest looters, just to disperse them. Andy No said the head of Philadelphia's police department was the head of uh, Portland police department until this year. And police also found sticks of dynamite in a van last night. And the looting continued into a third day. The New York Times has attacked the Washington Examiner for suggesting voter fraud is possible. The Times uh, should think itself in good position to point its fingers at anyone for the spread of misinformation. My colleague Beckett Adams from this story has uh, already delivered a magisterial swipe at the New York Times hypocrisy on this matter. But it's worth unpacking a little of it again. Although there's been stiff competition, it may be that the New York Times has spread more disruptive falsehoods than any other news outlet in the past four years. That's from the Washington Examiner. And Byron York says New York Times blockbuster scoop on Trump rush was dead wrong. Other reports were too. And of course, they got big picture wrong, then tried to correct 1619 Project on the sly. And New York Times has the nerve to accuse the Washington Examiner of misinformation. 
Hmm. Well, the polls, well, there is a 13-point spread from poll to poll. 13 points separate CNN, which has Biden up 12, and Rasmussen, which has Trump up 1. The polls update um, regularly, so keep your eye on them, but a skeptical eye. Ed Morrissey questions the Washington Post-ABC poll that has Biden up 17 points in Wisconsin. Meanwhile, golfing legend Jack Nicholas, uh, Nicholas rather, has tweeted his plug to re-elect Donald Trump. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll uh, hear a classic interview with Gary Thomas on when to walk away, finding freedom from toxic people. And then at the top of the hour, we'll hear from Jeremy Dice, a special counsel with uh, for litigation and communications with First Liberty Institute on a woman who's uh, won her case on sharing the gospel in a park. And Jim Carafano, he'll talk with us about the Philadelphia riots, just another example of street violence used to advance radical political agendas. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Author Gary Thomas is helping readers find freedom from toxic people in his latest book. When to Walk Away takes beloved relationship author Gary Thomas in a new direction as he helps readers understand that relationships with toxic people may not be worth the time and effort they take away from an individual's calling. Learning how to deal with toxic people isn't first and foremost about protecting our joy, our peace, our reputation, or even our sanity, though these things are good aims. He says it's primarily about protecting our mission. Instead, he explains we need to focus on time and energy on people he calls reliable. Drawing from years serving as a pastor, he shares both biblical and modern examples to equip readers with practical insights to deal with difficult people in life and how to live true to one's God-given purpose. Christians especially often feel the guilt and responsibility of meeting the needs of unhealthy people in their lives, even more so if that person is a sibling, a parent, a spouse, a child. We're going to talk about that. Well, my guest, Gary Thomas, is a writer in residence at Second Baptist Church in Houston, Texas, and an adjunct professor, a faculty member, I should say, teaching on spiritual formation at Western Seminary here in Portland and Houston Theological Seminary in Houston, Texas. He is the author of 19 books, including Sacred Marriage, Sacred Pathways, Cherish, Sacred Parenting, and the Gold Medallion Award-winning Authentic Faith. He has a master's degree from Regents College, where he studied under Dr. J.I. Packer and was awarded an honor doctorate in divinity from Western Seminary. He's spoken in 49 states and 10 different countries, has appeared on numerous uh, times on variety of uh, national television and radio programs, and we're just delighted to have him with us today to talk about how to handle people who are, well, toxic, when to walk away, finding freedom from toxic people. Gary Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to be back on with you, Georgine. Thank you. Well, this is um, something of a departure from what we're used to hearing from you, but it really isn't because you're still writing about relationships, but just how to handle those that are unhealthy. Well, it is, and it's about healthy relationships and investing in those relationships that really give the most benefit for the sake of God's kingdom and even our overall um, joy. So, It's focusing on why we need to walk away from toxic relationships that tend to make us sick and sabotage the healthy relationships. Well, let's begin by defining what a toxic relationship is and how that differs from just being annoyed, for example. Yeah, that's such a key question. Every toxic person is difficult, but not every difficult person is toxic. A difficult person might just be annoying. A difficult person might be troublesome, but a toxic person has an agenda. They want to hurt you. They want to 
control you. They're determined to get you to do what they want you to do, or they just basically want to take pieces out of you. And so if you're around people that are doing that, where they're undercutting your self-confidence, or you think you have nothing to give to anyone else, they show you peace and joy so you don't have the energy or zest left over to be a light to other people. Basically, they're not only just keeping you from helping them, because toxic people don't want to be helped, but they're keeping you from the productive relationships that God calls us to be a part of. And so when they're taking pieces out of you, an analogy might be when you go through lifeguard training, one of the first things they teach you is self-defense. Because if you're going out to try to help somebody who's drowning and they're panicking, they may Mm -hmm. unintentionally drown you. And so you've got to learn how to protect yourself so that you're not brought down or, or nobody wins. I think we need to do the same thing for spiritual ministry, but we don't let ourselves be drowned, not from a selfish perspective, not because we don't want to be bothered. As Christians, we live to be bothered, but so that we can be strategic as Jesus was in making the most of every opportunity. One of the points that you make, and I think this is so important and you write about it, is the relationships that may be toxic that are most difficult for us are those familial relationships of siblings, parents, uh, close family relations, maybe even a spouse. Can a toxic relationship or person be redeemed or restored? Uh, Because we always want to be hopeful, but is that realistic to imagine that it's possible? And if so, what would it take for that to happen? Yeah. Well, walking away isn't always writing off, but it means at this given moment, it's just not productive for us to be there. Uh, And the title, When to Walk Away, really comes from the example of Jesus, where I was shocked to discover 41 citations in the Bible, and they're all in the appendix, where Jesus chose to walk away from someone or let someone walk away from him without giving chase. And we see how he even, with his family members at times, would seem to let them walk away. One time they came and they said, here's your mother and brothers. This is who my mother and brothers. It's he who does the will of my father in heaven. Jesus was so focused on the ministry that God gave him. And in many of his passages, he makes clear that loyalty to his blood supersedes loyalty over every other blood, including familial blood. So it's a whole new way of life, that we're about the mission, and when to walk away is just about being focused on that mission and not letting toxic people sabotage it, regardless of whether it's a family member, a boss, a co-worker, a sibling, or an adult child. Now, and you, you do this very well in the book, but our time, of course, is very short, and I want to make sure that we address this notion of uh, just simply walking away because we are annoyed or frustrated and severing ties um, for that purpose, putting ministry ahead of the relationships that we ought to nurture. So can you just spend a moment to kind of clarify so that we understand we're talking about a certain kind of toxic person and not just simply, for example, someone for the sake of ministry neglects their family? Oh, absolutely. The, the whole point of when to walk away from uh, toxic relations is to walk toward the reliable people. Paul says in Second Timothy 2.2, Whatever you've heard me say in the presence of many others, and trust to reliable people who are qualified to teach others. And Jesus set up the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 19, as making disciples of all nations. Every Christian is called to be involved in healthy relationships. And I do believe that we need to put our spouses and our family first. Look, I've spent my whole life writing about that. Uh, But we can get to a point 
um, you're, you're talking to adult children or other times where we allow those toxic people to keep us from the productive relationships. Jesus was so free in sharing his truth. And then when somebody wouldn't receive it, he was just as free to walk away. And that's what we're saying we need to do. Well, you made reference to this a few moments ago, that Jesus walked away from toxic people in relationships. You mentioned um, him uh, focusing on his mission, even when his mother and siblings uh, appeared to to see him. Can you give us a few compelling examples of this um, that influenced you the most in recognizing Jesus' wisdom in making sure he was focused on his mission and yeah. was not distracted by toxic people? Yeah, let me give you two. The first one is in a toxic situation, but it's illustrative of what we're talking about. It was a rich young ruler. And the reason I choose that is one of the Gospels mentions Jesus loved him. The rich young ruler came to Jesus. He'd been a, lived a largely obedient life, but there was something about him that drew Jesus to him. It says very clearly, Jesus loved him. And then Jesus makes an incredible invitation. He says to him, look, you want to be perfect, so all that you have, and then come follow me. And we think of that as a common phrase, but it wasn't. Apart from the disciples who did respond, the rich young ruler is the only person I could find that Jesus said that to as an individual. The rich young ruler, however, chose to go away. The Bible says he went away very sad because he was very wealthy. Now, we know that Jesus loved him, but the next verse says Jesus turned to his disciples and said, let me explain to you why it's so difficult for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. He didn't say, look, let me have another chance or whatnot, even though his heart was toward that man. And what that tells me is that we can't even let personal affinity affect our strategy. Jesus said, okay, if you're not ready to hear the truth, if you're not ready to become an obedient disciple, we spend my time with those who are. In a toxic situation, there's a famous case in Matthew chapter 8, when Jesus heals a couple men possessed by demons. The demons asked to go into a herd of pigs, and Jesus said, sure, they go into the pigs. Pigs run over the cliff, and the townspeople are appalled. Their livelihood has just gone over the cliff. And then this is what's so sad to me in Matthew eight thirty four. They have Jesus in the flesh. They, they get to see what we would. I can't even imagine what mm. we'd pay for a ticket to see Jesus over a weekend. But they said they pleaded with Jesus to leave their region. They said, just go, because they were more concerned about what had happened to their livestock. And Matthew 9, 1 is the very next verse where it says, Jesus got into a boat, sailed away, and went to his own town. He didn't walk away, he sailed away. The principle is the same, that when Jesus, he, he wouldn't apologize. He'd say, I'm giving you an opportunity to respond, but if you don't, I'm going to go to the reliable people. I'm going to go to those who are willing to walk in obedience and spend my time there. Hmm. How can you tell who the reliable people are? Well, Paul says qualified to teach others, and that doesn't mean they have the gift of teaching. But I think it's people who have an open heart. For me, Georgine, what I look for is humility. Um, it's, it's something I have to aspire to, something every healthy Christian should aspire to, because without humility, we don't think we need to grow. And I think that's one of the things with toxic people, why interactions are so ineffective with them. Uh, some months ago, I had to have an adult tooth taken out. There was an infection that kept coming behind it. I, I don't know if you've ever been through that as an adult, but it is not a fun procedure. Mm. It's like you're pulling the jaw. And if, if I had woken up and somebody had strapped me to a chair and did that to me, I would be screaming bloody murder. I'd want the person to go to jail. <laughs> I paid that man $1,000 to do that to me. 
And the reason why is I saw the infection on the x-ray. So mm. you know what? I've got to get the infection out. And so when we share even the best truth, the, 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 the grace-filled truth, but somebody doesn't think they have an infection, not only will they not appreciate it, they'll turn on us. Jesus said in Matthew 7, 6, don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine or else they'll turn and tear you to pieces. And that's a picture of somebody without humility who's getting the pearl of great price. They're getting the truth of God's reconciling love, but it doesn't break their heart. It doesn't convict their heart. It makes them angry and spiteful. And Jesus is saying, I don't want you to be torn up as you go into ministry. Yeah. Yeah. Georgie, that, that was the amazing insight for me is that just after Jesus said, Matthew six thirty three. Seek first the kingdom of God. In other words, church, go on the offense. Seven verses later, Matthew 7, 6, he says, but don't give what is holy to dogs or throw your pearls before swine. We're talking with Gary Thomas, author of When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. We need to take a quick break, but we'll continue our conversation in just a few moments. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with author Gary Thomas, his latest book, When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. Now, in each chapter of When to Walk Away, you include insightful takeaways that can be applied right away uh, to the readers. Talk a little bit about um, the structure of the book and how you intend for your readers to get the most out of uh, learning these principles of walking away from toxic people. The first part of the book just gives the example of Jesus. That's really what is the heart of the book, following the example of Jesus, who was strategically focused on making the most of the life that um, he had on this planet and walking away from the toxic people. Then we go into describing what is a toxic person. It takes three chapters, but there are certain things that we look out for. Again, we're not talking about difficult people. Mm -hmm. I'm not mentioning them as as, uh, uh, un-Christians, but really talk to people, and then the need to go on the offense. Why do we walk away? Because the time is short and the mission is so urgent. And so finding those reliable people, and then we take all of those principles and basically apply it to relationships. What does it mean toxic people at work? What does it mean even in a marriage situation? What does it mean with parents? What does it mean with adult children? And then also an honest look about how not to be toxic to ourselves. Georgine, some of the people listening, the most toxic person in their life is the one who brushes their teeth Mm. every morning. If we want to rid the world of toxicity, we don't want to be toxic to ourselves. And then also, I think, an inspiring chapter of a guy who recognizes he was a toxic person and his path out of it, what he learned, how the presence of Jesus Christ in his life helped him to go from being a toxic person to one who encourages and loves. How do you set healthy boundaries to protect your purpose and mission if you find yourself in an environment where uh, you are in the orbit of a toxic person? One, that I found the easiest way for me without guilt to walk away from a toxic person is to be involved in healthy relationships. Uh, if a toxic relationship is taking me away from being present with my wife and kids when I get home, the kind of relationship that's haunting you, you're trying to figure it out, uh, they keep you awake at night. What happens is that relationship is chipping away from the healthy God-ordained relationships, and that's a good sign that you need to walk away. Um, If I'm in a work environment and I find myself spending more time trying to avoid someone or interacting with someone 
and not getting the work done that, frankly, I've been hired to do. That's a good sign. It's a toxic relationship, and I need to walk away. So really the best key is to have that positive sense. What's the mission God has given you for this day? What are the healthy relationships you're called to invest in? Family relationships, but also productive relationships of discipling and, and giving what God has given you. And, and, and making a priority of those. It's the priority that Jesus gives us in the Great Commission. It's the priority that Paul gave to Timothy in 2 Timothy 2.2. 2, and she's organizing our life on that level. When we are in the midst of the kind of attack that a toxic person uh, levies toward us, how do we find refuge in God when those uh, and when we're in the process of trying to extricate ourselves from the situation? But how do we find refuge during uh, those attacks? If we don't want to be vulnerable to toxic people, we have to learn to not care what they think about us. For me, one of the most liberating chapters was the one about Nehemiah, who wanted to rebuild the wall of Jerusalem, who was attacked with threats from religious authorities, from, with threats that were going to bring in political authorities. They questioned his motives. They were lying about him. And the end of the book of Nehemiah is, ends with this, remember me with favor, my God. And the reason Nehemiah was able to overcome the lies, the threats, um, just all of the, the challenges and the slander is that he was more concerned about being remembered with favor by God and not by the toxic people. When we care what toxic people say about us, even though knowing others might believe them, we give them a particular power. We're going to spend too much time trying to placate them, even though they can't be placated. So we need that freedom that Jesus had, the freedom that Nehemiah had. to just say what matters first and foremost is that I'm remembered with favor by God and not worrying what others think. How do we keep a tender heart um, even when we are confronted by or influenced by an unhealthy relationship? The most dangerous thing about not walking away from toxic people is a tendency for us to become toxic ourselves. I, I don't know if you've experienced this, Georgine, but I'm never more tempted to respond in a toxic way than when I'm dealing with a toxic person. If they're trying to control me, I want to control them back. If they're trying to murder my reputation, I want to slam theirs. And so when I go and live by Colossians 3, where Paul says we take off anger rage, malice, slander, filthy language in line. That's all the arsenal of a toxic person. Instead, we're to be people who are compassionate, kind, gentle, patient, and loving. That's the model that I want to give. Regardless of how this person is responding, I'm called because of the love of Christ to respond with compassion, mm -hmm. kindness, gentleness, patience, and love, and not to use the toxic tools of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language in mind. Now, one of the things that we mentioned earlier is that you encourage your readers uh, to invest in people um, who are, are healthy, um, engage in relationships with what you refer to as reliable people. How do we grow the inner strength to invest in the kind of people who, have, or who are like-minded and are not determined to undermine uh, God's call? It's one of the things I hope this book does, Georgine, is just fire up God's people with a sense of mission. Not because we're important, we're not, but God's kingdom is important. Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God, and you cannot be a Christian without being called. 
And you can't be a Christian without being equipped. It's not that we're gifted. It's that the Holy Spirit within us can be so powerful. So when we honor our time and we honor the God who is within us and we honor the message of reconciliation, God reconciling the world to himself, we honor that message as well. We realize every day matters and every relationship is important. And why waste our time with what Jesus would say, giving what is holy to dogs or pearls before swine, when we know they just won't appreciate it. They're just going to attack us for it. Instead, we can find the willing. We can find the understandable. It's the method that Jesus used. It's the method that Paul urged to Timothy. It's the method we need to live today. It's God's method to see his kingdom glorified in this world. I think for many of us, um, toxic people and relationships are people that we care about, we're concerned about, and even though that's not reciprocated in a healthy way, we want to have hope that there's transformation in the future. How should we relate to the, to people, even though we've we've um, we're not relating in the same way, we're not allowing them to influence and undermine uh, God's call in our life. What hope do we have for, for toxic people, and what should our approach be, not in terms of our personal contact, contact um, but our hope in their future? Yeah. One of the most difficult and convicting portions for me in researching and writing this book and going through the scriptures is to see how evil controlling is. Um, as powerful as God is, as right as God is, if he compelled all of us and made us follow him, we think in one sense, we would be better off. But God was a God who offers choice. Choose you this day whom you will serve. He demonstrates choice by Jesus walking away from people and letting them walk away from him. It's Satan who is controlling. Um, You don't hear the Bible ever talk about God possession. It does talk about demonic possession. Even though we're filled with the Spirit, Paul says the Spirit of the prophets is subject to the control of prophets. So what that means, Georgine, to answer the question I can speak the truth, I should lay out the truth, but I can't control, I can't compel their response. I have to leave that with them. If I try to become controlling, even if I'm in the right, I'm not using the methods reflected in the image of God. I'm actually using the strategy of Satan. That's a difficult lesson to learn. And and so we can act in a toxic way without being toxic. A, A mom who knows a son, for instance, is getting into drugs, can be very difficult for her not to be controlling, but we have to be strong enough to realize that God calls us through persuasion. He, he doesn't force us, and he calls us to treat others as he treats us. Once again, the book is titled When to Walk Away, Finding Freedom from Toxic People. Gary Thomas, thank you so much for talking with us. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for having Appreciate me. It. By the way, the book is published by Zondervan. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. Well, officials at the Memorial and Library Association in charge of Westerly Library and Wilcox Park in Rhode Island banned and threatened Gail Blair, who's 63, with arrest. She didn't stop having conversations with others in the park about Jesus. That's according to a discrimination complaint. Well, we talked about it at the time, and we've just learned that Rhode Island is no longer banning 
this uh, woman from the park, the public park at, in Westerly for sharing her Christian faith. And here to talk with us about that is Jeremy Dice. He is special counsel for litigation at First Liberty uh, to discuss her case. First of all, welcome and thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Well, let's look back to what happened um, when Gail Blair, uh, who was blinded through, a, a, I believe, an illness, uh, would go to the park. She would share her faith. What res- what happened that led to her being banned and threatened that has now been resolved? Yeah, you're right. Uh, Gail had a degenerative condition that uh, slowly lost her, that caused her to slowly lose her sight over many years. And and the one thing she clung to and the one thing that she found the most joy in was being able to go across the street to this park that's operated by a library and, and memorial park association and, and talk to people about Jesus and, and share with them the gospel of, of John. Uh, that caused them, of course, to be upset about that at some point, and they, they called the police on her to kick her out. But First Liberty Institute stepped in to represent Gail. We filed a complaint with the Human Rights Commission there in in Rhode Island, saying that, look, um, it's discrimination on a couple of fronts. Number one, disability. You can't kick someone who's blind out of the park for for, for that reason. But number two, you, you can't do that if that person is uh, engaging in religious activity as well. Uh, and so that brought the Library and Memorial Park Association to the table to sit down and figure out if we could resolve this through some level-headed discussion. And I'm glad to say that that worked out. And the Library Association, thankfully, has done a great job of of recognizing that uh, they need to do something that allows Gail to recognize to, to to talk about her faith with others in the park and pass out those copies of the Gospel of John. So, you know, just recently she went back to the park, thankfully, after this agreement came down, and, and we hope that she'll have many years there of sharing the good news in the park with others that are there as well. Now, the initial incident occurred in July of last year. Was it the park and library that that uh, complained about uh, her coming to the park, or was this uh, another uh, patron coming to the area and being offended by her action how did this start? Who who filed the complaint initially? It ultimately, it was the library association that called the police to say that, um, as they put it, that there were they were concerned about littering of the Gospels of John all over the the park complex, as if that was you know some McDonald's wrapper that kept blowing in the wind across the these manicured gardens. Uh, you know, Gail is blind, so she would happily pick up anything she saw off the ground, but has a, has a little bit of trouble, as you can understand, mm-hmm. finding those copies. She even offered to buy those copies that the Library Association found, to buy them back from the Library Association so she could pass them out to somebody else. But there really was no, uh, no, fi- no, no final way to really resolve the matter once they called the police and, and asked her to leave the park by, by trespass. Instead, uh, we were able to get involved, and, and I just got to say again, uh, my compliments to the Library Association there for coming mm-hmm. to the table. The entire board got to the table here and said, "Look, we've, there's got to be a way for us to figure out how to res- preserve the right of, of someone like Gail to sit on a park bench, have a discussion about her faith, and if the person that they're talking with wants one, to share with them a copy of the Gospel of John." That's what the agreement says, and, and Gail's only too happy to do just that. The winter, the fall and winter are setting in. Is she anticipating resuming her activities soon, or um, what? What does she expect in terms of uh, going back to the park, sitting on a bench, and inviting others to consider Christ? I, I suspect, so long as she can do so safely and, and and warmly, she will be in that park as often as she possibly can. In fact, I know she's already been there this week. As soon as she got the the report that she could, she 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 packed over and, and walked right over to the park and has already had some conversations this way. 
Uh, and I think, look, going forward, I think it's going to be a great relationship between Gale and the park itself, that uh, they'll be able to be mutually beneficial to one another. I mean, the library association that runs the park is, after all, interested in people reading books. What mm-hmm. better book to read than than the Bible, the best-selling book of all time? And and what better advocate for reading than someone who says you should read the best-selling book of all time? And, and that's Gail. That, that's her heart. She wants people to read this Bible, the thing that has uh, changed and comforted her life over many, many years. And that's the conversation she wants to have with others in the park as well. Looking back on this incident, was this simply a misunderstanding, a concern about littering, or was there initially some hostility? How would you characterize um, how this started? I'm grateful for how it's ended, but how how would you characterize uh, the offense that she had been called out on? You know, I, I, I don't really know. Maybe it was just, uh, you know, someone with a, a lack of a cool head on one day or a misunderstanding. It, it doesn't really, I guess, ultimately matter, uh, at least not there in Rhode Island. We, we've been able to explain what the law is, and the Library Association is excited about Gail coming back into the park now, and we're grateful for that. My concern, though, extends around the rest of the country. What happens to someone in your neck of the woods? Maybe you know somebody uh, that, that likes to go to the park and talk about their faith. If they're met with the same kind of approach of people pushing them out of the park because they dare to mention their faith, well, that, that's really dangerous. As, as we, we begin to erode little aspects of our freedom, maybe just one park bench at a time, it's still a loss of our freedom. And so I hope folks who go to firstliberty.org, read about Gail's case, and encourage people to, to exercise their rights safely and fairly within this country. Re- religion is something to be celebrated, not to be treated as if it's some sort of greater contagion than COVID-19 that has to be you know, inoculated against, or else we're all going to become ill. No, the First Amendment is very clear. We have the free exercise of religion, and that's a very good and precious thing that it serves as a foundation stone for all the other freedoms we enjoy as Americans. Let's protect it to the maximum extent possible. Let me just say how much I appreciate First Liberty Institute that represented Gail Blair and so many others in cases like this and some that are dissimilar to this to make sure that we preserve these rights that are enshrined in our founding documents. Um, for, for listeners who may uh, feel that they have experienced similar prohibition, what's the best way for them to communicate with you with regard to a potential case? Yeah, the best way is to go to firstliberty.org. That's F-I-R-S-T, liberty.org. And, and fill out a request for legal help if you think you've got an issue that we need to evaluate. And the good news is, as you know, we represent people for free. We don't think you should have to pay an attorney to obtain your civil rights under the First Amendment. And so we've had the privilege of working with Gail and so many others uh, for free because listeners to your show and all across the country have decided to invest in First Liberty to free us up to be able to go to preserve our, our country's religious heritage and, and religious liberty. Well, Jeremy Dice, again, I appreciate what you do. I appreciate um, the First Liberty Institute, and I thank you for talking with us here today. My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. I just wanted to uh, read here what um, Gail Blair said. She said, I'm thankful for First Liberty Institute and all my attorneys for fighting on my behalf and look forward to once again spending time in the park and sharing my faith in Jesus with those who are interested in having the conversation. So she is uh, kindly uh, extending the opportunity, and for those who aren't interested, 
She simply moves on. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Jim Carafano. He's a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. We'll talk about the Philadelphia riots uh, as another case of street violence used to advance radical political agendas. Are we prepared to um, accept that as a way of uh, pursuing change? Or should it be ended in the interest of the broader public? We'll talk with Jim Carafano about that when he joins us in our next segment. We'll be back in a moment. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. My next guest, James Carafano, writes, uh, like the replay of a bad movie, a law enforcement incident in Philadelphia triggered an excuse for violence and looting. He's talking about Philadelphia, where riots are yet another pretext, uh, this street violence used to advance radical political agendas. He mentions the city of Portland, the city of Seattle, as uh, we've experienced systematic attacks that seem to be a daily event, or at least they did, uh, over a period of 100 plus days. We'll talk about this new tactic that seems to be popularized and uh, most troubling, tolerated by those in positions to put an end to it. Uh, James Carafano, thank you so much for joining us. You are a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. I appreciate your writing on what's happening in Philadelphia and has happened elsewhere and confronting this new tactic. Welcome. It's great to be with you. You know, I I think um, there's really kind of two buckets, and I think it's really important that people understand the difference. The, the one is like Kenosha, Wisconsin, and I call this really opportunistic violence. There's an incident with police. A bunch of people show up, a bunch of people come out, there's a lot of violence, but the city doesn't really want it and it doesn't tolerate it. So it immediately turns, asks for state and federal backup. People come in, they restore law and order relatively short order. Now, unfortunately, it took 48 hours in Kenosha and the disruption was just tearful. And this is terrible what they did to people. The opposite, the other model is the kind of thing that we see in places like Portland and Seattle where you have government officials who hamstrung the police. Um, normalize the violence, excuse the violence, prosecutors that refuse to prosecute the violence, they don't ask for federal and state help. And that really creates a a space for really kind of systemic rioting, looting, protesting. Um, So when this breaks out in Philadelphia, you know, it's a moment of, it's a time of choosing in Philadelphia. Which way do you want to go? Do you want to be like Kenosha, restore the the rule of law, bring public safety back to the streets, prosecute people who are breaking the crime, you know, go after the organizations that are in there trying to organize this activity, or do you, do you want to create a permissive environment, which is just going to basically make life hell for the people living in your community? Yeah, the interesting thing is the people who um, are most hurt by this have nothing to do with the issues that are purportedly uh, at the forefront of this outbreak. Um, what, how would you characterize what's happening in, in Philadelphia? We're three days in, uh, and I'm hearing from reporters and others that uh, Philadelphia police have been told not they're, they're told to disperse, but not to stop the rioters. How would you characterize what's happened and happening there? Yeah, I, this is the, the, the accommodate people, you know, let them burn off steam. They have legitimate grievances model. It just doesn't work. Because you have determined organizations that are there to sustain and perpetuate the violence and demonstrations. And if you give them space, they will fill it. And and things won't calm down. They'll get worse. And to your point, often this happens in urban communities where the people that are most adversely affected are low-income 
wage earners, small businesses, and minority communities, they're devastated Yes, because people push this political agenda. And when it's over, they don't come back in and fix the city. They don't fix these people. But, I mean, those, if those communities ever get fixed, it's because eventually people come back and invest in them. But the people that are leading the riots and the destruction, they're not going to fix those communities. One of the things that I think is most frustrating are those who are um, enabling this violence, uh, public officials, rogue prosecutors, and others who are allowing it to uh, to continue. What what do they have to gain? And I mean, do you understand the logic behind their response to all of this? Is this a, a political ploy to retain support? How would how would you explain the inexplicable behind these public officials and rogue prosecutors, as I've mentioned? who simply look the other way or refuse to press charges that should rightfully be applied. Yeah. Well, I think they're, they're trying to advance their own political agenda and ride it on the back of, of this uh, violence. But look, they can't control it. These people have money, organization, national reach. Um, and they have put an agenda which says we want to drive radical political change by making communities unlivable and using violence to intimidate people and force them to change. I got to tell you, um, that's not a popular agenda. You know, there was a lot of popular support for protests back last spring. Yes. Um, yes. That's declined, and that peaked in June. It's declined significantly, and it's declined primarily because people are seeing more rioting and looting, and they're like, hey, we don't want that in our communities. And you see that even reflected in the, these leftist politicians and even the rogue prosecutors and stuff. They, they, they kind of stop talking about that or they excuse it or they change the subject. You don't hear people running for a national office run around saying defund the police anymore because they, because they see the American people are totally turned off on this. Now, what's really interesting is, I mean, everybody is very fearful of post-election violence. I think if there is violence post-election, that's going to make th- this agenda even less popular. Americans do not want political change driven by violence in the streets. And uh, uh, it's already unpopular. And if there's more of it after the election, it will become even less popular. Now, do you think politicians who have succeeded in maintaining their positions of authority are more likely to address it more forcefully? Or because there is no pending election, they're less likely? I mean, how, how do you think the election uh, is likely to impact those who retain their position of power and authority that they have uh, simply abdicated prior to the election? Well, they will, they will discover two things. One is they can't control these groups. And the other thing is the people in their communities, they don't want this. Mm-hmm. So they will have to do, if they will have to do what this president is doing now, restore law and order to the streets, uh, stop the violence, prosecute people. Otherwise, they'll lose control of the community. Look, these guys, you know, groups like BLM and Tifa, they don't have the capacity or the support to, to, to bring chaos throughout the country. They don't. The reason for that is most Americans don't want it. The only place where they can sustain their operations, unfortunately, are in cities like yours, where, there, where nobody is stopping them. I've uh, been reading some of the radical posts from this area and around the country. And, you know, people thought if Donald Trump wins the election, then there's going to be political violence. What I'm reading is it doesn't matter what the outcome is. Um, there's not a, the agenda is not radical enough. There's going to be violence in the streets right. or at least some form of protest either way. So unless this is confronted, 
this could be ongoing well beyond the election. Um, and if it's tolerated, uh, these officials and and others who have been tolerated, they must be removed or um, the, the general public must rise up and say, no more, we will not tolerate you or we will not tolerate this. Well, I think, you know, very simply, I think, you know, if, if there is violence after the election, what we'll see is Americans will be more disenchanted with, with political violence and they'll want less of it. And then the question is, is what happens to these groups with all their money and supporters and everything else? Um, because they're not going to change this country through political violence. So, I mean, we have other models, you know, like, like the Occupy movement. They could just disappear and go away. They could turn into kind of a more traditional political movement with grassroots organizations or something else. Or we could see a darker side like we saw in the 1960s when the Students for Democratic Society failed and you had break-off factions like the, the underground weathermen who started domestic terrorist campaigns. Mm-hmm. And, and look, there are going to be people on the right, there are going to be revolutionaries and counter-revolutionaries who actually may get frustrated that this isn't happening and they may turn violent. And then we have to unleash law enforcement to stop them in a lawful way. But we can't play politics quite honestly, like we did in Portland, said, well, we can't enforce the law because that's not politically correct. We have to enforce the law because if we don't, people are going to die. And, and yeah. we don't need that in America. We don't need another wave of bombings and violence like we saw from the left in the 1970s and, and radical white supremacy in the 1980s. We don't need that in this country. No, we do not. We do not. Well, Jim Carafano, I appreciate your um, writing on the subject and talking with us here today. We'll continue to see what happens and hold elected officials accountable. Thank you so much. Thank you, my friend. James Carafano is a leading expert in national security and foreign policy challenges. Um, Just a great, uh, great voice of uh, reason. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, the Girl Scouts deleted their tweet congratulating Amy Coney Barrett. Apparently, that's controversial. Uh, The fifth female to sit on the U.S. Supreme Court to issue a congratulatory note. The thing I have to try to think through, because I'm having a hard time following how the culture is viewing these things. You are a woman to be admired if you are a liberal woman. If you are a conservative woman, you're not really woman enough. Uh, If you happen to be a biological male who self-identifies as a woman, you are considered a woman. But if you are a biological woman and pro-life, well, then you're something Uh, less to be regarded. Well, nonpartisan girl power yet again draws the wrath of progressives and liberals. The Girl Scouts later tweeted, earlier today we shared a post highlighting the five women who have been appointed to the Supreme Court. It was quickly viewed as a political and partisan statement, which was not our intent, and we have removed the post. Now, it would have been better to simply add uh, a statement saying this is not political or partisan. This is a woman who has reached the pinnacles of uh, jurisprudence. That would have been the way to do it. But no, they gave in to the pressure. Megan Kelly says this is pathetic. It's not partisan to generically congratulate the fifth woman ever to join the high court. It's patriotic. Taking your tweet down is partisan, however, and a real disappointment. Katie Pavlich points out, I thought the Girl Scouts was about female empowerment. Y'all lost your way a long time ago, but this is a new low. Well, Major Major League Baseball is criticizing the Dodgers star for celebrating with his team while testing positive for COVID. The league was highly criticized of Justin Turner as political correctness makes it impossible for them to note he and his fellow teammates are not at risk. 
Well, even celebrities are blasting California's new Thanksgiving rules. I don't want to speak too loudly. I don't want Governor Brown to hear. But the story notes, among the new rules are all gatherings must include no more than three households. Masks must be worn on uh, after eating and drinking and singing. Chanting and shouting are strongly discouraged. Many of the celebrities quoted in the story are more conservative than most. Well, overseas, where there is no Thanksgiving, they're threatening to bust up homes that break the rules during Christmas gatherings. So... Welcome to the new world. I'm not sure it's brave, but it's new. The U.S. GDP booms at a better than expected 33.1% rate in the third quarter. And the Senate interrogated big tech CEOs over bias. Mark Zuckerberg says he was not aware that the Facebook election integrity official worked for Biden. Something you might want to check out if you're trying to put together a non-biased group. Jack Dorsey says uh, we haven't censored the U.S. president, but a report says Twitter has censored President Trump 64 times. Meanwhile, Zuckerberg and Dorsey struggled to name a single liberal who had been censored on their platform. Meanwhile, Twitter suspended a border chief for celebrating a wall's protection from illegal aliens. Well, the Senate committee successfully verified that all of Tony Bubalinski's material reviewed to date has been reviewed to date. And the former DHF chief of staff, Miles Taylor, reveals that he is anonymous, the Trump critic. And a disgruntled Russian in uh, Cyprus was behind key parts of the discredited dossier on Trump. We've also learned the Wall Street Journal has more. And Project Veritas exposes a massive vote fraud effort saying they want to help Biden. In the annals of the social justice caliphate, Philadelphia police discovered a van loaded with explosives and suspicious equipment, and a thousand looters turned Philly's retail zone into a total loss, according to Police Magazine. Uh, Expensify, the CEO there, tells 10 million customers to vote for Biden or face a possible civil war. Sounds like a threat. And the Southern Poverty Law Center released a guide for managing white fragility. I'll have to consult some of my Caucasian friends and ask what that is. Hurricane Zeta swept through the south with damaging winds and flooding rains on its path to the northwest, or rather northeast. And a Kenosha, Wisconsin auto dealer says his insurer won't cover riot damage. Portland delayed the vote on an additional $18 million in police cuts. Don't read that as uh, they're having second thoughts. It's simply delayed. There were 100 people signed up to testify. My guess is they'll postpone it until more can be heard from, and then they'll use that as a pretext to move forward. Harvard has created a committee to weigh the removal of historical figures. Well, an attacker screaming, Alua Akbar decapitated one elderly woman, killed two others at a French church, and Germany and France are preparing for new lockdowns as COVID sweeps through Europe. Well, the 2020 election will cost $14 billion and blows away any previous spending records. And a new poll shows Democrats like Cuba more than they like Israel. Well, on this day in history, 1929, Black Tuesday descends upon the New York Stock Exchange. Prices collapse amid panic selling and thousands of investors are wiped out as America's Great Depression begins. 1956, the year I was born, the Huntley-Brinkley Report premieres as NBC's nightly television newscast. And on this day in history, 1987, following the confirmation defeat of Robert H. Bork to serve on the U.S. Supreme Court, President Ronald Reagan announces his choice of Douglas H. Ginsburg, a nomination that would fall apart over revelations of Ginsburg's previous marijuana use. Hmm. And 1998, Senator John Glenn, at age 77, roars back into space aboard the shuttle Discovery, retracing the trail he blazed for America's astronauts some 36 years earlier.
Oregon's record-setting stretch of coronavirus infections continued for a ninth consecutive day, we're being told, pushing the state's daily average to nearly 400 cases. That's up 10 percent from a peak two weeks ago and 15 percent above the summer surge. The latest spike came Wednesday as the Oregon Health Authority report uh, reported rather 424 new cases, seven more deaths. And another troubling sign, the rising case count cannot be solely attributed to testing volume. Nearly one out of every 10 tests reported since Tuesday came back positive, marking Oregon's second highest rate since March. Uh, Oregon has seen far fewer cases and death per capita compared to almost any other state in the country. But Oregon's average daily case count is now where states like Idaho and Montana were three or four weeks ago. And those states have seen case, uh, cases double since then. More than 150 people addressed the City Council of Portland on Wednesday regarding the panel's plan to slash 18 million additional dollars from the city's police budget. After an online meeting that lasted more than five hours, council members decided to seek more information from city budget officials and delay their funding decision until next week. Uh, That means the decision will be made next Thursday after voters decide Tuesday whether Mayor Ted Wheeler or Commissioner Chloe Udaley will win new terms. Udaley cast the sole no vote to adjourn Wednesday's meeting with Wheeler and Commissioner Amanda Fritz and Dan Ryan all opting not to decide on more than a dozen budget matters, the news outlet um, Oregon Live reported. Commissioner Joanne Hardesty left the meeting early, saying she was disgusted by the lack of courage from Wheeler, Fritz and Ryan in choosing to wait until after the election. And in um, other news, just a week out from the, uh, well, less than a week out from Election Day and its business um, as usual in the Pearl District, but flashback to election night 2016, and it was a different story. People protect, protested rather throughout Portland. It caused property damage to businesses after President Donald Trump won the election four years ago. And now businesses are preparing just in case we see a similar scenario next week. May peace. And by the way, what I'm reading from radical groups around the uh, <clears throat> around the state It doesn't matter who wins the election. They're planning uh, protests and the level of violence. We don't know uh, either way. May Peace, who's a manager of the dispensary, Oregon's finest, said that they've already been broken into multiple times this year. They even have boards up on their windows now from a recent break in. It's been three times related to the protests, really more opportunists. The first time their Pearl location was uh, hit was when protests first started this summer. That was May 27th. It was the first day of the protest. And we had some opportunists take advantage of that late morning. 330. With election day around the corner, she said they're planning on having some preventative measures in place to prevent any more break-ins and to keep their staff safe. And that is the story among many retailers around the city anticipating uh, what some are saying will be the fallout from this election. And that is there'll be demonstrations, protests, whether or not they'll escalate into violence remains to be seen. But these business owners don't want to take any more chances, many of uh, whom have already lost everything. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back to wrap things up. World leaders are standing united with France after a man armed with a knife decapitated an elderly woman and killed two others at a church in the southern city of Nice on Thursday. Authorities there opened a terrorism investigation, and the prime minister said the country's threat level will be raised to its maximum after the attack. Well, the suspect, believed to be acting alone, was injured during the, the arrest, was taken to a local area hospital. He, as he lay wounded, 
The Nice mayor said the attacker repeated Aloua Akbar over and over. Well, ahead of uh, French uh, President Emmanuel Macron arrival in Nice later on Thursday, leaders from around the world condemned the attack, expressed their unwavering support to uh, France and its people. That included the British Prime Minister Boris Johnson calling the attack at the Notre Dame Basilica barbaric, tweeting in both English and French that the UK stands steadfastly with France. Our thoughts are with the victims and their families, and the UK stands steadfastly. The Vatican, in a statement, said it is a moment of pain and a time of confusion, adding that terrorism and violence can never be accepted. Today's attacks sow death in a place of love and consolation, like the house of the Lord. It's a quote from Matteo Brunei, who's the director of the Holy See Press Office. The Pope is informed and the situation of the situation and is close to the Catholic community in mourning. German uh, Chancellor Angela Merkel, she also said that she was deeply shaken by the terrible murders in a church in Nice. The French nation has Germany's solidarity in these difficult times. Well, that followed with Turkey and others who also spoke, the president of the European Parliament and others, the Spanish prime minister, the Lithuanian foreign minister, uh, and so on, condemning these acts. My understanding is the elderly woman who had gone to the Basilica to pray had been uh, nearly decapitated. Two others uh, had been stabbed in this place of worship. This is a dangerous place we live in. I'm in Bible study fellowship. We're studying Genesis where it all began. And the very simple decision, seemingly simple decision to taste test a piece of fruit from a tree that they had been told not to uh, impart uh, in led to everything we're experiencing today, not just the sins of others, but my own. And it is a serious business that we find ourselves in. And there is nothing that can happen in France. There's nothing that the European Union can do. There's nothing that the election for the next president of the United States can do to resolve the fundamental underlying issues that fuels the violence, the dissatisfaction, the unease, and and everything that we're experiencing in life today. Only Jesus Christ himself can do that. And I hope that we recognize that our primary role as followers of Jesus is to sound the alarm that what's wrong with our culture, what's wrong with the world today goes much deeper than who sits in positions of authority. Now, those are important decisions. Don't get me wrong. They're important. I'm going to be casting what I believe is an informed ballot. And I hope the people that I'm supporting, that I've prayerfully considered, I hope they are successful. But if they're not, I'm not going to be uh, despairing. Because I recognize the history of mankind and the fact that all of us has inherited sin and we are living out uh, the consequence of that, um, that sin. I expressed with a pastor, uh, Pastor Greg Allen with Bethany um, Bible Church earlier in the day how weary I am of covering the news surrounding this election and covering the news surrounding the pandemic and all of the heaviness that's going on, reading that there is an epidemic of uh, depression and loneliness in our culture today. And it, it just, it's a heaviness. You're bearing the, um, the pain of others. Uh, it's a heaviness that's, that's very difficult from day to day. And so it, my afternoons are challenged because I can't just dismiss these things as, well, it's just a news story. These are people who are suffering around us. But I am reminded, and I'm so grateful for God's word, that for those of us who know Christ, we have um, received his grace and mercy and the provision that he made for our own personal sin, we have a solution that the world desperately needs. And I hope that we're not so preoccupied with the daily headlines and the news that we forget that we have an answer 
that can um, bring the peace that people are so desperately looking for. And that will be our primary response to it all. But as I mentioned, I was speaking to Pastor Greg Allen from Bethany Bible, and he uh, sent back to me um, Psalm 146, 1 through 10. And I wanted to share that with you because, again, it gives us context uh, that is much needed during this season. This is a New King James Version of Psalm 146, 1 through 10. And it simply begins, praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. While I live, I will praise the Lord. I will sing praises to my God while I have my being. Do not put your trust in princes or presidents or prime ministers or governors or mayors or city council members, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth. In that very day, his plans perish. Happy is he who has the God of Jacob for his help, whose hope is in the Lord his God, who made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, who keeps truth forever who executes justice for the oppressed, who gives food to the hungry. The Lord gives freedom to the prisoners. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. The Lord raises those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the strangers. He relieves the fatherless and the widow, but the way of the wicked he turns upside down. The Lord shall reign forever. There will not be an election There will not be balloting. There won't be debates. The Lord will reign. The Lord shall reign. The Lord is reigning forever. Your God, O Zion, to all generations, including this one during a pandemic in the year 2020, the one we wish we could race through on to the next thing. O God, O O Zion, your God, O Zion, to all generations, he shall reign forever. Praise the Lord. And I just say, praise the Lord. And again, I want to repeat one section of that scripture. Do not put your trust in princes. I guarantee if your if your man ends up in the White House, if your choice is in the legislature, if the person you most support is in the mayor's chair, they will disappoint you. Do not put your trust in princes, nor in a son of man in whom there is no help. His spirit departs. He returns to the earth in that very day. His plans perish. There is a limit to what men can do. Even the best well-intended plans are limited. So don't put your trust in princes. We need to be informed. We need to vote. We need to do the right thing, but recognize where your trust it should be, where your hope is, where your help will come from. And I think we'll all do better during this very challenging season. Again, reading from Psalm 146, 1 through 10, and that was the New King James Version. Thank you, Pastor uh, Greg Allen, for that reminder. Well, we're just about out of time. I want to thank James Blend for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering, Dan Rice for the use of his office, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. I hope you spend part of your day on your knees praying for our community, our country, our state. Um, We need Jesus, and uh, I'm hoping that all of us take seriously that we can present him to the world. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at G. Rice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ.